You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to FDNY Pro's WNYF Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant John Paul Orger, and today we are joined by Lieutenant Stephen Ryan. Lieutenant Ryan has served the FDNY since 2003, and this is his first article with WNYF. Lieutenant Ryan, welcome. Thank you, JP. Thanks for having me. Okay, so air-supported structures. I've seen them before. Most of us have. You know, I think while we're driving along, we'll look over and we'll see what we refer to as a tennis bubble or the dome. I have to admit, I never really thought much about operating at one of these locations, whether it would be for a fire or any other type of emergency. I found your article to be very interesting, and it kind of sparked some thought for me in respect to operations. What turned you on to this? So, yeah, so I was in a, uh, a tennis bubble, air supported structure one day for uh, my daughter's soccer game. And I was kind of standing there waiting for the game to start, looking around, thinking, what would happen if, if something happened in here? What would happen if there was a fire? What would happen if there was suddenly a large hole put into the side of this structure? What are the redundancies they may have in place to get everybody out in time? How do people get out? And just tons of ideas kind of followed through my head. And I went home, put some uh, thoughts to paper, and came up with this article. Now, have you had any type of background in, in these structures before, or I mean, no, you just I started researching on your own. I just kind of did some research on my own. I actually uh, contacted somebody upstate at a, uh, a company that manufactures and designs these these structures, and he was a wealth of information. Share some of that information with me. Tell me a little bit about how these are constructed. Some of the structural components. There's two ways that they usually make it. They have a membrane that's roughly 12 to 20 ounces per square yard. And it's either constructed with a heavier weight material, which is bolted to the ground and then inflated to take that balloon-shaped structure. Or the more common and cheaper way to do it is they use a lightweight material, which is supported by rib cast and welded into the structure, and then it's inflated. Now, you mentioned in your article the material that they use on these structures is just like polymers, or they're nylons and PVCs? So the smaller fabric is just a nylon fabric, where the larger ones, more for a soccer field, would be a PVC-coated woven polyester. What they do is they actually take the two seams, and some plants will actually have a large table where they're heat-melted at 300 degrees Fahrenheit, which, as we all know, 300 degrees can happen pretty quickly in a fire situation, and those seams can become undone very quickly. Are there standards or guidelines for these companies to meet? They all have an international building code that they kind of follow, in terms of how they design and how they manufacture these air-supported structures. However, the local building codes for your local municipality will supersede that. From a fire protection perspective, what are some of the standards or guidelines that these companies need to meet? For fire protection standards, they have to follow NFPA 701. And there's more NFPAs that are out there that they have to just kind of keep in track to make sure that in case there was a fire in there, that people can escape and the amount of time that it would take for the material to actually begin to melt and rip. So from a structural standpoint, what are some of the weaknesses? How can these structures fail? These structures are obviously, they're not permanent. They are air-supported structures. Some of them are called seasonal air-supported structures, just like the Baker Athletic Complex for Columbia that just opened this past year up in Inwood, Manhattan. Some of the big issues that they have over the years have been wind. What I like about this article is that for the FDNY, this is a very proactive look at an emergency operation. This department hasn't experienced a serious emergency operation, at least to my knowledge, in an air-supported structure. That said, there have been occurrences across the country. Can you share some of that with us? Arizona State in 2008 had an air-supported structure which came down in a windstorm. 
Luckily, it was in the middle of the night and nobody was injured. In 2002, Philadelphia Port Authority, by air-supported structure, had a strong snowstorm, which accumulated snow on top of the structure, which then came down and took off the door that was connected to the structure, which allowed all the air to expel very quickly. The New York Giants training facility in 2007 had a strong winter wind whip through the area, and it literally ripped the door off of the structure. Luckily, nothing happened in any of those, as opposed to the Dallas Cowboys practice facility where 70-mile-an-hour winds came through, ripping down the structure on top with some of the steel that was up there, uh, injuring 12 and permanently paralyzing one of the scouting assistants that was in the building. So there's steel in these structures on the inside? The Dallas Cowboys practice facility had some steel that was going up across it to make it a more permanent structure. Most of these structures do come down in the summertime because it's more cost-effective to not run the HVAC units in the duct work all year round. And lighting, I would imagine, causes an issue as well? These structures will allow natural light in during the day, but at night, for nighttime activities, they will have lights hanging from the membrane. With the deflation of these structures, these lights will come down, depending on the size of the hole, with great force, possibly trapping victims and hurting victims inside. So the internal lighting is actually attached to the membrane? Yes, it that hangs seems directly like an, from the membrane. Seems like an awful lot of weight, <laughs> weight that could be carried It is a tremendous there. amount of weight, and, and the air pressure inside of it really isn't that much. If you think of a car pressure is 35 PSI, the air pressure inside of an air support structure is just 0.35 PSI. So it's just slightly above atmospheric pressure. So it seems like most of these occurrences are weather-related. That would be the most common. From all my findings, the most common are weather-related. Either it be wind or snowstorm. Those are the two main problems that we have with air-supported structures. Which says to me then that first responders across the country, including here, are relatively inexperienced then with operating, whether it be at a fire or any type of medical emergency or mass casualty incident within these air-supported structures. Um, I love this article. This needs to hopefully start conversations around the country and get more people thinking about just how we will operate when a day comes that there is a fire at one of these events. Now, I did read in your article that I guess on-site engineers at these facilities do raise the pressure in certain circumstances. So with an impending storm coming, whether it be a snowstorm or a windstorm or a rainstorm, they'll either raise the heat if it's a snowstorm coming to make it around 90 degrees in the structure and also to inflate it a little bit more so it's a lot sturdier. They're allowed to dip down seven to eight feet on the top, but by raising the pressure and raising the heat in there, it will keep the snow and ice from accumulating on top of the structure. If that does happen, they will literally take ropes and throw it over the structure and direct those pieces of ice and snow in the direction that they want it. The biggest problem that they have is that the ice and snow will come down and sever off a piece of the uh, door frame. And by doing so, causes an enormous hole in the structure. With wind, with strong winds coming, they will do pretty much the same thing. Well, they'll overinflate a little bit so that it can withstand a wind. New York City code requires it to stand a wind gust of 98 miles per hour for three seconds. Okay, so let's say, for instance, we have an emergency or a small fire within one of these structures. Are there actions that a first responder may take that potentially will have a negative impact on operations? The worst thing you can do is keep the door open. The main access and egress from an air-supported structure usually is a revolving door. It's the easiest way to let occupants in and out. In an emergency, there are evacuation doors that they have in place. Once those evacuation doors are opened, the secondary phase of the generator will kick in to keep that structure supported for a predetermined amount of time, dependent on occupancy loads. 
So by keeping that door open for longer than that predetermined amount of time, more air will escape and the fans just won't be strong enough to keep it inflated. So a great tactic would be if you are stretching a line into the structure, use the size of that charged hose line to keep that door slightly ajar, not fully ajar. And I guess for a medical emergency or a mass casualty incident, that would be something to be mindful exactly. of as well. Exactly, JP. You don't want to you don't want to keep that door open for too long because the fans just aren't they can't support that much pressure going into it. Speaking of the fans, are there redundancies? There are. So every company that that manufactures these air supported structures do put redundancies in. If the main fan shuts down and the main unit shuts down, there is a secondary unit that is ready to go, usually diesel powered, and it's ready in case of failure of the primary. You mentioned in your article at least two studies that were conducted on these air-supported structures. What were some of the findings? The University of Maryland did a study where they demonstrated that even a small fire will create a small tear directly over that fire. That small tear eventually will create into a much larger tear, thus diminishing the amount of air that's supporting the structure. The tear that expands will expand very quickly and will diminish that internal pressure. And in this study, in about 10 minutes, that tear was big enough to allow all the air to expel from the structure. The fire research station study also showed that heat and smoke will travel through the hole over the heat source, just like we know that a hole above a fire will allow heat and smoke to travel through it. However, that hole isn't large enough to accept all that heat and smoke, so once the doors are open for the occupants to leave the structure, all the heat and smoke will travel in that direction because that's the path of least resistance and will hinder the evacuation process. So besides structural failures caused by weather, what are some concerns that you might have the amount of people that can access these buildings, that can, that can be in these buildings, is astronomical. They're very, very large. The Baker facility, which is in Inwood through Columbia, is 92,000 square feet of surface area. And if they wanted to have an event in there, there are thousands and thousands of people that will be in that event. You want to make sure and you want to just be cautious for an MCI event, the moving of people in and out in something like that. It's going to be a slower process to get the people evacuated because again, we can't keep those doors open for too long. Right, to your point earlier, those emergency egress points are great for moving large numbers of people, not so great for the air pressure within the facility. Yes. I mean, these, these dome shapes, they're dome for a reason because it's the greatest amount of space for the cheapest amount of material, the least amount of material. So that's why they're so inexpensive to make and that's why everybody seems to love them. So what are some tools that you think we would need to have on scene in the event of one of these structures failing? So if one of these structures is failing, we have to be concerned with an array of things. Uh, number one, we want to make sure that we somehow support that door. So some sort of structure to be built inside that door to hold it open would be perfect. There will be voids depending on what was in the structure when it came down. In regards to, let's just say, the ice rink that's in Long Island City, there are boards that are 10 feet high surrounding an ice rink. Of course, there'll be tons of voids in that area if this thing comes down. So we want to be cognizant of that, and we want to be cognizant of people that are, that are trapped underneath there. To get to them, we can use a utility knife if we needed to. It cuts very easily with a utility knife when it's fully expanded. However, when it's been deflated, it might take a little bit more strength to get through that. A seatbelt cutter that you have on the rig would be a great idea to use because you can start at a certain point and then just rip it right down the seam. The rib cast that comes across could either be cut with a sawzall, a saw, maybe a lobster tool, or even bolt cutters to try to access and get that off of somebody or, or away from an injured person. In terms of electrical power running to the lighting systems and other utilities within the structure, where are the shutdown switches for these? Every place is different. In all honesty, the, 
great world would be the facilities manager would be standing right next to the command post indicating where everything is. So many structures are seasonal, so the duct work isn't necessarily permanent. It's not sitting there where you would think it would be. More permanent structure will have duct work in the floorboards and will push the air up that way. So that might be in some sort of basement next door. Some of these are attached to already existing structures to expand the size of that structure. So the shutoffs for everything that's in there, all the utilities might be in that permanent structure. So the answer to that question then to me is know your response area, know the types of buildings that are there if you have one of these facilities in your response area. Exactly. This is a great facility to be entered into the SIDS program. It's a great facility if you have it in your response area to go out at mud one Saturday or Sunday morning and take a look at it and really familiarize yourself with it. So you just mentioned two things there, SIDS and mud. For our listeners that don't know what SIDS stands for. SIDS is the Critical Information Dispatch System which is information that is submitted by the officer at a structure that the officer deems uh, is noteworthy for responding units. It's printed out on our response ticket when we receive the alarm. And MUD? MUD is multi-unit drill that all companies participate in on either a Saturday or a Sunday throughout the year. So Steve, what I do at the end of each segment is I give my guests an opportunity to share either a point of view or something that they'd like to pass on to first responders, our listeners. Is there something you'd like to share with the first responder community? Yeah, so just you have to keep these things in mind. I mean, they're a third less of the cost of a traditional brick and mortar type of building, which means they'll be more prevalent. They'll be uh, everywhere. They're popping up all over the New York City area as we speak. And with the fact that they are cheaper to maintain, cheaper to operate, and cheaper to build, the membrane itself will be much lighter weight, will be more susceptible to any sort of collapse during a fire situation. We spoke earlier about you know, wind and snow emergencies that could happen there and have happened across the country uh, and that could definitely happen here in the city. We want to just be cautious of all of that. We want to be cautious also where if it has deflated to treat it more of a collapsed area instead of just walking over the structure. There could be people in there, there will be uneven surfaces while we're walking along it and we want to make sure that we are, as we're moving along, we're checking for these voids that we spoke about. If there is a fire that's going on, you may want to just use the reach of the stream to try to access that fire before moving an entire uh, company or two onto this structure without knowing what's underneath. Steve, it was great having you in the studio today. Thank you very much for coming in. This is an extremely interesting topic, and uh, I hope to hear more about it soon. Thanks for having me, JP. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to fdnyfoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.